Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John 2.18. 1 John 2.18 as we dive into kind of a strange text. By the way, if you are a visitor and this is your first time here, come back next Sunday for a normal non-antichrist sermon. Uh, What we do here at Parkway is we just preach through books of the Bible and so it makes us deal with text we typically uh, wouldn't deal with and that's one of those things uh, that we're going to encounter today. Anytime you get into any in timesy related topic, right? So this text mentions the last hour. It mentions an antichrist and antichrist, all these kind of things. Anytime you're talking about in times topics, whether it's the resurrection, whether it's what happens to you when you die, whatever it is, for some reason, churches just go off the rails. They will interpret the Bible pretty well in just about every point, and then they get to the book of Revelation, or they get to parts of 2 Thessalonians or 1 John, and they just throw their brains out the window. And so we don't want to do that today. Uh, We want to interpret this text accurately. But to get us ready to see how easy it is to go astray, I want to start with a little illustration. So uh, you guys know how some churches have those kind of cutesy church signs out in front of the church, and they can change the text every week to say something new? Now, you might like those. I personally hate those signs because I think that they're counterintuitive when it comes to evangelism. I don't think anybody that's struggling with depression is going to drive by a church and see the sign that says, forget the porn and be reborn and be like, that's what I needed to hear. That's going to bring conversion in my heart, right? Or God wants full custody, not just weekend visits. Well, if you're a divorced dad, that sign actually kind of hurts, right? And so uh, I don't like those church signs, but there was, uh, there was recently two churches, and they were across the street from each other, and they started battling each other with their church signs, okay? There was a Catholic church on one side and a Presbyterian church on the other side, and they started fighting each other by using their church signs for all the world to see, okay? Some people had tweeted about it and put it out on social media. Now, it could be photoshopped. I don't know if it is or not, but it's fun anyway, and it lets us see how silly we get when it comes to end time stuff. So let me share with you what the church has said, okay? First, you had Our Lady of Martyrs Catholic Church, and they simply put out, all dogs go to heaven, okay? Probably just as a little joke, probably just having fun. Well, across the street, you had Beulah Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and they responded with, only humans go to heaven, read the Bible, okay? So you already see what was probably a joke has now turned into a fight. So then the Catholic Church responds, God loves all his creations, dogs included. To which the Presbyterian Church responds, dogs don't have souls, this is not open for debate, okay? So you can see the Presbyterians here hold the right doctrine, but as Presbyterians have a tendency to do, sometimes they don't get the joke, okay? Sometimes they don't get the joke. So the Catholic Church responds, Catholic dogs go to heaven, Presbyterian dogs can talk to their pastor, okay? Which is a great response. The Presbyterian Church then says, converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. And perhaps in the best retort, the Catholic Church says, free dog souls with conversion, okay? The Presbyterian Church then says, dogs are animals, there aren't any rocks in heaven either, and the Catholic Church says, all rocks go to heaven, okay? That's the debate, okay? Now that's the debate. So you can see that there's not a lot of clear thinking when it comes to anything end times related, anything uh, like this, we have a tendency to, to not really know what we should think about dogs going to heaven or resurrection or some of these other things. And so we're going to be dealing with an interesting text here today in 1 John 2, 18. Now, a few things before we get into the text. 
First, I want you to recognize that this text is what is called a chiasm, okay? What does that mean? It follows an A, B, B, A pattern. It says we're in the last hour, something about antichrist, something about antichrist, we're in the last hour, okay? It creates this little antichrist sandwich, which is the sandwich you never want to eat, but that's kind of the way that the the text is structured. Now, this text also might seem like it's kind of random. Doesn't it seem that way? John was encouraging us in our faith two weeks ago, and then last week he was warning us not to love sin, not to love the evil, sin-scarred world, and then all of a sudden he's talking about some sort of antichristic figure. Why does he do that? Is that random? Well, here's why John is able to talk about this at this point. John is writing to a Christian community where people are being tempted to leave the faith, to follow false teachers, and to cause schism. And so in his mind, as he's talking about Antichrist, he's talking about people that are false teachers, people that cause schism. So as he's going to encourage us to love one another, to remain faithful, here he takes a quick blurb to say part of what it means to be a faithful Christian is not to promote disunity, is not to promote schism, okay? So let me just say it clearly. Disunity, schism for schism's sake, is sin, okay? It is sin. Now, there are times to disunify. There are times to not seek unity, okay, when it comes to something that is false doctrine. One of the things that Martin Luther said is he said, unity if possible, truth at all cost. Amen to that, okay? We live in a culture that says truth if possible, unity at all cost, okay? Unity is not a virtue if you're unified around the wrong thing. It's not good to be a team player if you're on the wrong team, okay? There are times to break away, to cause division in a non-sinful sense, but what John has been addressing is sinful division, division for division's sake. So, with that in mind, let's look at verse 18, which is what we're going to be looking at uh, all this morning, but we're just going to break it down word by word and phrase by phrase. So here's how it starts. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, let's look at the first word there. John addresses his audience here as children, okay? Why does he do that? This is not like a pejorative term. This is not him making fun of them. Multiple times throughout 1 John, he will call them little children. He will call them children, whatever it might be. This is a term of endearment, okay? The Bible says that the church is founded on the prophets and the apostles. And here you can imagine the apostle John as this grandfatherly figure, and we as Christians are sitting at his feet and he's giving us this instruction. That's why he's addressing them as children. He loves them, he cares for them, he wants to protect them. And one of the things you do when you love your children is you protect them from weirdos, amen? You protect them from false teachers, you protect them from what is bad. So I'll give you a little story. Um, Tim Hollis, our worship minister, has a daughter named Hallie. She is adorable. She's like this little smushy mashed potatoes baby. She's adorable. And uh, she's about six months now. And uh, about three months ago, they dropped her off for my wife and I to watch her. So uh, Tim and his wife were going out to run errands. And so they dropped off little Hallie for us to watch Hallie. And so we decided to go to the mall. We brought Hallie with us. We decided to go to the mall as a family. So it's me, my wife, our kids, and little baby Hallie, okay? So we go to the mall and we're sitting down having a soft pretzel. Hallie is not having the pretzel, okay? We're having a soft pretzel. And this, I want to choose my words graciously, this very unkempt female mall cop comes up to us, 
Okay, now again, as Jeff said in a previous sermon, if you're a mall cop, we don't mean to offend you, we thank you for your service. But this, uh, this unkempt female mall cop comes up to us as we're just eating, and she gets a little too close to the babies, and she goes, and she starts making faces. She's trying to make silly faces. Now, the kids are clearly not having it. They're not laughing, they're just becoming more and more terrified as time goes on. Now, normally, I would have stepped in by now, but I don't want to fight the law, right? They might get on their walkie-talkie and call someone else who also doesn't have a gun to stop me, right? And so they're making, they're making, she's making these faces, and then she looks at my daughter and Hallie, and she goes, you can tell these two are sisters. It's so clear. They look just alike. They don't look anything alike other than their pastiness. They don't look anything alike, and they're not sisters. And we're trying to wait. We're kind of waiting for this lady to leave, and she goes, all right, we all have a good day, and she grabs Hallie's little foot and then walks away, Okay. And as she walks away, my wife gets the hand sanitizer and puts it on Hallie's little baby foot, okay? Why? Because when you love your children, you want to protect them from weirdos. You want to protect them from infection. This is how false teachers get into the church. They come in looking like an authority. The devil appears as an angel of light. They come in with their mall cop uniform, and before you know it, they're spreading disease. They're touching all the baby feet in the church, and there's problems that are happening, okay? And John wants to warn his audience about this. Is that the weirdest illustration you've ever heard? Maybe. But you'll remember it, so there's a method to the madness, you see. Let's look at 18 again. Children, he now says, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. Let me explain what I think John means by that, and then I want to throw a wrench in hopefully your entire theological system. What John is doing by saying it's the last hour is he's trying to simply say, pay attention. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm giving dire warnings. You need to hear those. Big things are happening. That's all John's trying to do. There's a New Testament scholar, a German, you can tell by his name. His name is Rudolf Schnackenberg, and he says this, with the warning signal Antichrist have come, all he means to say is that his own time has an eschatological, that term just means end times related, an eschatological importance. He wishes to alert his readers in the face of impending danger. That's why John is talking about the last hour. But let me explain something that may be new to you. We have a tendency when we think of the end times or the last days to think of something that's going on in America in 2019, don't we? We have a tendency to say, okay, North Korea just created a nuclear missile. We live in the end times, okay? Uh, Saddam Hussein is doing all these bad things. We live in the end times. Let me throw a wrench in your theological system by saying this. John thinks that he lives in the end times. In fact, by saying the last hour, he thinks that he lives at the end of the end times. See, we have a tendency to think that the end times is just today, and yes, of course, that's true. We're always one day closer to it than the day before. But the end times has been going on for 2,000 years. The end times is a theological category for what happens at the first coming of Jesus. In between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, that whole era is the end times. The New Testament authors will tell their people 2,000 years ago that they are in the end times, that they are in the last days. And so, Zach, are we living in the end times? Yes, but we've been in the end times for 2,000 years, okay? Don't think that you're so special in this. The end times is a theological category for what happens when Jesus gets up from the grave and the spirit is given and the gospel goes to Gentiles. Those are all end times events. Let me share with you some passages. Acts 2.17. And in the last days, 
When did this happen? It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. This text is saying that whatever the end times is, it happened back at Pentecost in Acts 2. We have a tendency, again, just to think it's just today. It's been going on for 2,000 years. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Apparently, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, thinks they're in the end times. Hebrews 1-2, again, written 2,000 years ago, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Hebrews 9-26, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice, the cross is the end times, okay? That's when the end times begins, and we are still in the end times today. And then Matthew 16, 28, if you really want a verse that will make you stay awake at night, truly I say to you, there are some standing here, again, 2,000 years ago, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, okay? So he is saying 2,000 years ago, to the audience that's watching him, some of you will not die before you see the end begin, before you see me come in my kingdom. And they do see it because the kingdom is not just something future, it's something that began 2,000 years ago. They see it at the transfiguration. They see it when Jesus is resurrected. The kingdom is already and not yet. Also, the end times is already and not yet. So I say all that to say, are we in the end times? Yes, of course, but we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. So please don't read your Bible in light of your newspaper. Read your Bible in light of the Old Testament, read your Bible in light of church history, but don't read it in light of your newspaper. The end times is already, but not yet. It's kind of like the construction going on on Virginia Parkway right here by the church, okay? I moved here about three years ago, and right when I moved here, they added an extra lane. So I thought, okay, they're they're working on the road, and it's finished. But since that time, every single day, they're working on a different part of the road, but nothing gets done. I don't even know what they're doing out there. There's just cones on one side of the road, and then the next day there's cones on the other side of the road, but the street hasn't gotten any bigger. They've just been doing this for years and years and years. It's like a game. And not only that, but they've added like 1,000 stoplights, which defeats the purpose of adding an extra lane anyway. And so there's a tendency for me to think, it looks like things are getting worse. I will never drive down Virginia ever in a peaceful manner. The end has begun, but it is not complete. One day. One day they'll be done working on it, thousands of years from now, okay? They'll be done working on it, and then it will bring about the peace and prosperity promised, but it's already begun. It's already begun. Or to give another example, uh, the staff went over to one of our deacon's homes, and uh, he has a karaoke machine. Now, you have not lived until you've gotten to hear Jeff Ashley and Carl Brower, two of our pastors here sing a duet to Whitney Houston's And I Will Always Love You, okay? Especially when they get to the chorus, they kind of look each other in the eye and they're like, and uh, and they're like looking each other in the eye. Now, as soon as they started singing that, it was hilarious and it was awkward right away. And as they kept singing, it remained hilarious and awkward the whole way through, okay? It was already, but not yet. That's how the end times is. Are we in the end times? Yes, but we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. The end times is not a fiat moment. It's a big swath of world history. You with me? Okay. 18 again. 
Children, it is the last hour. Now let's look at this next part. And as you have heard that Antichrist in the singular is coming. Okay, now let me break that down into two parts. First of all, it says, as they have heard. How did they hear about it? Why does John expect that his audience knows to watch out for some type of evil figure, some type of false teacher, some type of antichristic figure? Here's the reason. In the early church, when somebody becomes a convert, they just don't have them invite Jesus into their heart and that's it. They give them doctrine. They teach them a bunch of things. They go through a a catechism. They go through this big process of teaching them what it means to be a Christian. And so John expects that these people have already heard about this. John expects they remember when Jesus says that there will be false Christs and false teachers, false prophets, they're aware of these kind of things. This tradition is handed down. Does everybody here know who Socrates is? Maybe you've heard of that name. I'm not, not like you know him personally. He's been dead a long time. But Socrates, okay? Socrates is this great philosopher. We don't have any writings from Socrates. Everything that we have that's supposedly by him is written by his student. Who is his student? A guy named Plato. If you don't know who Plato is, we're not talking about the children's molding clay. Plato, with a T, is the greatest philosopher who's ever lived. He's kind of a big deal, okay? He learns some stuff from Socrates, and he becomes a great philosopher. And who is Plato's student? Aristotle, okay? Another big name. Maybe you've heard of him, okay? When you talk about the greatest philosophers in world history, the top four are Plato, Aristotle, Kant, and Hegel. So if you're in that that group, you're a big name, okay? Who is Aristotle's successor? Who does Aristotle teach? He teaches a guy named Alexander the Great, okay? Think about that pedigree. Think about that lineage, okay? Who's Alexander the Great? He conquered the known world in his early 20s. I I don't know what you were doing in your early 20s. I'm in my 30s and I can't conquer the weeds in my backyard, but Alexander the Great, that's why he's not called Alexander the Pretty Good. Alexander the Great conquers the known world in his early 20s, why? This knowledge is passed down, it's passed down, it's handed down, and in Christianity, what we do is we pass down what is called the once for all delivered to the saints gospel. That's the way the New Testament will say it. We don't just get somebody saved and that's it. We teach them. And John expects that his audience has already heard about this. He expects that they already know false teachers will arise. False Christ will arise. They'll sneak in in their mall cop outfit. And so you should be aware, okay? Now look at the next thing he says. And as you have heard that, and then he says that antichrist is coming. And he says it in the singular, okay? What is this antichristic figure? Is there just one? Is there more than one? How should we think about this? In Jewish thinking and in Jewish apocalyptic literature, there was this idea that there would be an ultimate figure that would oppose God. That's where this idea comes up, okay? So who is the antichrist? It kind of depends on who you ask. In the book of Daniel, the figure that opposes God and opposes God's people are worldly kingdoms. They're worldly nations like Rome and Greece and things like this. In the intertestamental period, if you were to be a Jew in the first century and you were to ask them who most opposes God's people, they would say a figure named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was this pagan ruler that conquered Jerusalem and he slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple. He would fillet Jews alive. He was this really awful, terrible figure. That's who they're thinking is this man of lawlessness. The early church leader uh, Irenaeus thought that the Antichrist would be a particular figure that would come at the end who was a Jew that came from the line of Dan based upon Genesis 49. 
Chrysostom thought it would be resurrected Nero who came back to life. So here's a little story you might not know. The emperor Nero, the bad, everybody know who Nero is? He's not a good guy. He was this evil emperor. He killed a bunch of Christians. He'd tie them up in animal skins and have animals eat them in the Colosseum, etc. cetera. Uh, after he died, he committed suicide with a sword, by the way. After he died, there was this myth that was spreading around the Roman Empire. It's called the Nero Redivivus myth. It was this idea that Nero had come back to life, okay? He's kind of like Elvis. You think he's dead, but he still shows up every now and again in Vegas or in Atlantic City. That's kind of how Nero is, okay? And so Chrysostom thought that it would be a resurrected Nero that would be this antichrist figure. Gregory the Great, who's a uh, big thinker in church history, thought that it would be anyone who took on the name universal priest. Now, the reason that's really ironic is because most would say that Gregory I became the first pope, thus taking on that name, okay? During the Reformation, the reformers thought that the Antichrist was the pope. Who is it that sets himself up in the temple and gets glory for himself instead of Christ? Well, they would say it's the pope. It even says that in the Westminster Confession of Faith, 25.6. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, the man of sin and son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God? Well, the church responded and said, no, actually the Antichrist is Martin Luther. He's the guy trying to draw everyone away from Mother Church. He's the one trying to go against what's been taught for 1,500 years. He's the Antichrist. In World War II, several Christians thought the Antichrist was who? Hitler, right? So it kind of just depends on where you live. Because of those dumb left-behind books, and I don't apologize for calling them dumb, they, they, they mentioned some figure, Nikolai, right? Which seems a little racist to me. It's always got to be a foreigner, right? The Antichrist is not Bob from Alabama, the Antichrist is somebody with a Soviet name from Estonia or something like that. And they just kind of pick and choose. So you can see there's not a lot of clear thinking about this topic. And so I want to explain it this way. What, what, the reason that we get confused is we take several different biblical passages and we mash them together, okay? We take what Jesus talks about in the Gospels about false Christs and false prophets, plural, we then jump to 2 Thessalonians where Paul talks about a man of lawlessness. That's the closest you get, by the way, to an antichrist being an individual figure is uh, 2 Thessalonians where he talks about this man of lawlessness in particular. We then link that up with the idea of the beast in uh, Revelation, right? Like Mark of the Beast kind of stuff. And then we mix all that together with 1 John. So let me just walk through some of these texts briefly and then I'll explain your options on what you can think about an antichristic figure, Okay. Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So the first thing is Jesus warns that false messiahs will come onto the scene. Tim had a great joke in his theological equipping. He said that uh, David Koresh, the guy down in Waco that led the weird cult, convinced people that he was Jesus while wearing glasses, right? So false Christs and false messiahs will appear we then mix that with 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, okay? So that's where we get this idea of a singular figure. And then we mush it together 
with Revelation. Before we get into Revelation, I need to read something out of Daniel, okay? If you wanna know what things in Revelation stand for, look in the Old Testament and not in your newspaper, okay? In Daniel 7, there is this prophecy of these evil pagan kingdoms that will arise. Persia, Medo-Persia, that means the Medes and the Persians, Greece, and then Rome. And listen to what it says when talking about Rome. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. Do you see the language of beast and how he looks like this big monster? Okay. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stomped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It's the greatest one. And it had ten horns. Notice that ten horns. Okay. So in Daniel, this beast is a governmental power, specifically Rome. That's exactly who it is in the book of Revelation as well. Look at Revelation 13, one through four. We'll put it on the screen. And I saw a beast, Uh uh-oh, there it is, same kind of language again, rising out of the sea with 10 horns. We've already seen a beast with 10 horns in Daniel, that's Rome, with 10 horns and seven heads. Why does it have seven heads? Rome was called the city on seven hills. Or possibly it's a reference to different Roman emperors. There were seven Roman emperors from either Julius or Augustus Caesar to the time that John is writing Revelation. So it has seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads because it profanes God. It seeks glory for itself. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, that's the devil, gave his power and his throne in great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound had healed. Remember that little uh, Elvis Nero story I told you? about a Roman emperor who kills himself yet might have come back to life. That's the same thing that's being referenced here in this text. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it, okay? So we we take that idea of Rome or evil governments that oppress God's people and we mash all these things together. How should we understand that this first part of this verse talks about an antichrist that's coming and the antichrist here is in the singular. Well, you have three options, three options. And I don't know which one is right. It depends on what day you ask me, which view I hold, okay? So flip a coin and one of those is right, okay? The first view is that the Bible is saying that there will be a future figure who is the devil himself. That's what some have said. That's what a lot of people in the early church thought. That this figure that's coming that so opposes God and his people is not a human, but rather something demonic. Okay, that's one view. The second view, and this is probably the most popular view, this view very well may be right, is that there is still a future evil person to come who will be like the worst of the worst. Okay? That there will be this, this human who comes in the future who is just like a combination of like Hitler and Kid Rock and Nero, and Kanye, and they're just like the worst, okay? They're just the worst. They're they're like those people that are always playing their phone loud in public places. They're the kind of people that make you late to the party because they've got to stop and get their ear medicine. They're just the worst, okay? It's like new and improved Antichrist, that he's coming in the future, okay? That might be the case. The problem with that reading is twofold. One, it says that this guy takes his seat in the temple and declares worship, and there is no temple, and the temple's not going to be rebuilt. If you think it is, you have not studied history very well, okay? 55% or more of Jews living in uh, Israel are atheist or agnostic. If you try to rebuild the temple, they will instantly be nuked by all their Muslim neighbors, okay, as you tear down the Dome of the Rock. And so that's a problem. The bigger problem with that interpretation is this. When the Bible's talking about this antichrist, this man of lawlessness, his persecution of Christians is global. 
It's something that all Christians are going to experience. You're going to know who this guy is, and it's going to be obvious. If that's the case, then it means Christ can't come back today because that figure is not in power. And he can't come back tomorrow, and he can't come back the day after that. And we know Christ won't come back until we see this figure. So in the meantime, we can just chill and get rid of all these commands the Bible tells us to have of being ready. That's a big problem with this view. The third view is that this doesn't literally have to be a singular figure. They're talking about it in the singular, but really the point they're trying to get across is that God's people will continue to be persecuted by evil governments and evil people, okay? The problem with that interpretation is these texts seem to say there's a singular figure. And so there is no good, clear solution. But here's the good news. You don't have to worry about who Antichrist is if you stay away from all false teachers. Amen? The Bible is less concerned with you knowing exactly this guy and knowing his name. It's more concerned about you saying if somebody is opposing Christ, if somebody is opposing false doctrine, that person is evil, I should not do what they do, I should not believe what they believe, I should remain faithful. That's what this text is more concerned about. Behind evil men and behind evil governments, America included, stands demonic powers. God's kingdom is not of this world, okay? God's kingdom is not of this world. Verse 18 again, just in case you were wondering if we're going to a different verse, we're not. We're still in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Now look how discouraging this is. So now many Antichrists have come. What? There's more than one? I'm an anxious person. You just told me to, to, to watch out for Antichrist, and now there are many? Not only does it say Antichrist now in the plural, it uses the modifier many. And this is many from John's day. Think about how many have come since then. I didn't, I, I thought it, every time there's an ant in my house, I think, I bet there's just not an A-U-N-T, right, but a bug, A-N-T. Every time there's an ant in my house, I think, maybe this is just the only one. That's what I kind of wish to myself. And then I look around and I see all kinds of ants, a whole big stream of ants, okay? Or a termite. You find one termite, you're like, I bet that's just a scout termite. I bet he's just looking around. He's on vacation. Nope, your walls are eaten up with termites. That's how this text says Antichrist stuff works. You see one and you're like, I didn't fall into that trap. And you turn around and there's like a thousand, okay? That Antichrists are coming. Here's what you need to understand. We have a tendency to think, one, that there's only one Antichrist figure, okay? That may be the case, but then we ignore that the Bible says that there are many Antichrists. We also have a tendency to think when we use these kind of end times language and we're talking about Antichrist stuff, we think of these as like popular, charismatic, obvious figures. And here's what's so amazing. Listen, to John, an Antichrist is somebody who's average. It's somebody who's normal. It's somebody who opposes Christ or teaches false doctrine. That's an Antichrist, okay? You have Antichrist at your work. You have Antichrist living on your street. You might even have Antichrist in your home, hidden in the walls. No, I mean with your family, right? Not just lost people. That's not an Antichrist, but somebody that actively opposes Christ or true doctrine, St. Augustine has a convicting quote where he says, each person ought to question his own conscience whether he be an antichrist, okay? So what it's saying is that there's not just one figure, but there are many figures who oppose God, many figures who oppose the teaching of Christ. The only place the term antichrist occurs in your New Testament is in the letters of John. Does that surprise you? That the book of Revelation never uses the term antichrist. Jesus doesn't use the term antichrist. 
okay? The, the, the term only occurs in John's letters. And so this is one occurrence. There are three other verses that mention this. Let me read those to you so you see what an antichrist is to John. 1 John 2.22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Notice what they're saying, that Jesus is not the Christ. This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. That's a package deal, by the way. When you believe in one member of the Trinity, you must believe in all because God is a Trinity. 1 John 4, 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. Okay? And now is in the world already. There he uses the term singularly and says that he's already in the world. Do something with that. Second John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay? So here's what you need to see from these texts. An antichrist is anyone who opposes Christ or teaches majorly false doctrine about him. Anyone who opposes Christ or teaches majorly false doctrine about him. That's what John is warning us against. That's what John is, as his children, if you will, in the faith, that's what he is warning us against. So here's what I want to do. I want to read you a list of some false teaching and some false teachers to watch out for, some antichrist. Now, I'm not going to mention all of them. There's a bunch of false teaching. I'm also not going to mention all the ones that might be Christians, but they're kind of on the fringe. I'm going to mention ones that are legit false teachers, legit false teachings that are antichrist. And I'm doing this not to be mean, but to do what John is doing to say, watch out, okay? Now, of these people I'm about to mention, I want you to be their friends. I want you to be around them. I want you to share Christ with them. But I do not want you to believe what they believe, and I do not want you to do what they do. But let me just give you a random list of a few. Let's start with some ancient ones. Anyone who denies that Jesus is God himself and has eternally existed, that person is an antichrist. The big heretic with that name in the early church is a guy named Arius. By the way, for Halloween, someone should go as Arius. Nothing's more terrifying than eternal condemnation, right? Anyone who denies that Jesus became fully human. So you think Jesus is just like Clark Kent. He didn't really become human. He just kind of looks like us with his glasses on, right? That's a heresy. Jesus, if he's going to redeem man, must become man. He's not just God driving a body. He has a human soul. He has a human emotions. He has human mind. He's truly human while remaining God. Anyone who thinks that there's more than one Jesus, anyone that thinks that Jesus is more than one person, like some sort of weird double Christ, okay? That person is an antichrist. There was an early church heretic named Nestorius that held that. Anyone who tries to mix Jesus' divine nature and his human nature. Jesus is one person with two natures. He's God and he's man. But those two natures are not mixed. It's not like his humanity becomes God or his God becomes humanity, the person who remains God takes on humanity. So let me explain it this way. If you have yellow paint and blue paint and you mix them, you get green paint, which is neither yellow nor blue. That's not how Jesus is, okay? His two natures remain unmixed. There was an early heretic named Eutyches that, uh, that was condemned for trying to mix those two together, okay? But let me give you some modern ones. Mary Baker Eddy and what is called Christian science, okay? That's not Christians who like science. You should like science. That's a cult, Okay, uh, Mormonism, right? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is anti-Christic. They literally, literally believe that the Father 
was a human from another planet who became God by being a good Mormon, and then he had a bunch of spirit wives that he had sex with to produce Jesus and his brother, the devil, and you can one day become a God if you do things like don't drink coffee, okay? That's their belief. When they show up to your door with their little ties, try not to laugh. Try not to laugh. That is farther away from the Bible than anything I can imagine. That is an antichrist, okay? Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, what I like to call Tom Cruiseism, okay? Tom Cruiseism. That would be an antichrist. Jehovah's Witnesses, who think that Jesus is just a creature, that he's just like a powerful angel, but not the very eternal God. Unitarianism, a lot of times it's called Unitarian Universalism. This is a group that not only denies the Trinity, that's why they're called Unitarian instead of Trinitarian, but they also believe that everybody's saved. I don't know what they do in their church services. I think they just get together and like pat themselves on the back, okay? That is evil. Buddhism, Hare Krishna, Baha'ism, Hinduism, Islam. Muhammad is an antichrist. He opposes Christ. He teaches major false doctrine about him. Jesus in Islam is a guy named Isa that is not the son of God. He's just a prophet. Anyone who promotes sexual immorality, including the LGBTQ movement. Now, let me say something about that. We are to love the sinner and hate the sin. I want you hanging out with people that are sexually deviant. 1 Corinthians 5 would tell you to do that, not to withdraw from the world, okay? But do not believe what they believe. Do not do what they do. Love them into the gospel. Postmodernism, anyone who denies absolute truth or our ability to know it is a, has a spirit, if you want to say it that way, of the Antichrist. Pantheism or panentheism. Pantheism is the belief that everything is God, okay? Panentheism is that uh, the universe is part of God. Those are both heresies. God is completely separate from his creation, okay? God is completely separate from his creation. The creation is not part of God. The prosperity gospel Most of the guys on the TBN channel are antichrist. They will tell you not to focus on Christ, not to focus on that you're a sinner, not to focus on that God uses suffering to grow you. They will tell you that if you become a Christian, you get to live your best life now. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, and if you're living your best life now, you're going to hell. Your best life is to come at the resurrection, okay? Atheism and agnosticism would be antichristic, obviously, because they deny who Christ is. The New Age movement is evil. Witchcraft and Wicca, which is growing by leaps and bounds, okay? A lot, a lot of witches. I don't mean like ride, ride around on a broom, witches. I mean like uh, witchcraft, spells, tarot cards, these kind of things. Witchcraft and Wicca. Now listen to this last one. The denial of absolute truth under the guise of love or unity. The devil appears as an angel of light. The mall cop has on a mall cop outfit, Okay? You're not always going to see it coming. How do you know if they all look the same? It's by what they say. Do they have correct doctrine? Doctrine is our litmus test to protect ourselves from what is evil, okay? To protect ourselves from what is evil. And if you say, Zach, it sounds like it's only Orthodox Christianity that's right and basically everything else is wrong. That's exactly what I'm saying, okay? Christianity has always declared that to be the case. If Jesus is who he says he is, everything else has to be wrong no matter how many of them there are. I hear people all the time say, well, Zach, there's so many other religions. How do you know yours is right? And I say to them, if you were a math teacher and the, the, the question was two plus two equals four and one student wrote four, one wrote five, one wrote six, one wrote seven, one wrote eight, and you got a bunch of different answers, does that in any way take away the truth of two plus two equaling four? 
It does not, okay? Anytime there's a right answer, they can be a numberless number of wrong answers, okay? So watch out. I haven't even named all of them. We could put more in this list, but I just want to give you a sampling. Regular lost people are not an antichrist, although they are opposed to God biblically. When John is warning against an antichrist, look at the kind of things he says. He says it's those that oppose Jesus. They say he's not the Messiah. They say he hasn't come in the flesh. They deny his humanity. They deny his deity, whatever it might be, okay? Watch out for those people. Lastly, verse 18, still. By lastly, I mean that's where we started too. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Look at this. Therefore, we know that, this, that it is the last hour hour. He reiterates it again as a warning and as an encouragement. Why does he do that? Let me give you a little illustration. I I meant to do this when we were teaching on Revelation in our eschatology class, but I forgot, so I want to do it now because I think it links in here with 1 John. Let me explain why the Bible tells us about end time stuff. Why does it tell us about eschatology? Why does it give us the book of Revelation? I think what we do is we come to the book of Revelation and we think here's a weird sci-fi book There's like a woman who's pregnant and a dragon, and I have no idea what to do with this. Let me tell you why we're given the book of Revelation. Imagine for a second that you are a soldier. You're an allied soldier in World War II, and you get captured by the Nazis. Okay, you with me? You're a POW. The Nazis have captured you. And while you're there, they ask you to give up secrets. Give up secrets on who the allies are. Give up secrets on where your spies are. Give up secrets on where you're going to attack next. And every day, they torture you. Every day, you see your fellow soldiers who are captured get tortured as well. And every day, the Nazi guards come by and they tell you this, you're losing the war. You're going to lose? We, as the Nazis, have taken another city in Europe. You're going to lose the war. You're not even going to get out of this cell. You're going to die here. And if you do get out of here, you better get used to speaking German. That's what they tell you. Every day. So as time goes on and as you're being tortured and as they're telling you you're losing the war, the Nazis are going to win, your tendency will be to lose hope. But then one day, a fellow prisoner slides a letter under the door that he's intercepted from the Allies and it actually tells you that the Allies are winning the war. We've landed at D-Day. We're pushing back the Nazis. They're on the run. Don't give up the secrets because we are coming to liberate you. Now all of a sudden, there's still the torture Now all of a sudden, there's still the tendency for despair, but you can hang on because you have a letter from the outside that tells you, though it looks like you're losing, you're actually winning. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why the book of Revelation was written, so that as we are being persecuted, as we are tempted to deny Christ, to give up the secrets, as we are discouraged, as it looks like the world around us is winning, we have a letter that says, not only are the allies winning, they're going to win in an overwhelming way and you're going to be free, hang in there. That's why Revelation is written and that's why places like 1 John give us these passages. They give us hope and they warn us not to fall away. It's both a warning and a hope that go together like that Nazi example. So, how do we avoid false teachers? It's not by staying away from lost people. We're supposed to be around lost people, okay? We are to love the sinner and hate the sin. So what do you do? Here's what you do. You have to know true doctrine. You have to know the scriptures, okay? So let me me say it this way. I'm not that pastor that gives a ton of rules. I'm not like, read your Bible and say your prayers and brush your teeth and sit up straight. I'm not that guy. I'm the guy that tells you if you never read your Bible again, God's love for you will not change one ounce, 
But if you don't ever read your Bible again, your spiritual life's gonna be pretty anemic. So the way you guard against false teachers is by knowing the Bible. It's by reading the Bible. So, wait for it. It's really, it's really complex. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Okay, Zach, I don't know how to read the Bible. I don't know where to start. Let me give you something really basic and easy for you, okay? Start in the New Testament. If you don't start with the New Testament, the Old Testament won't, won't make sense. We are supposed to read the Bible Christologically, meaning with our Jesus glasses on. So start in the New Testament and just start one chapter a day. Zach, you want me to read a whole chapter? A chapter in the Bible is like three paragraphs, okay? Zach, will that t- what will that take, like five minutes? Yes, probably about five minutes, okay? Start in the New Testament and just work your way through it slowly. I promise you, you have five to 10 minutes during a meal. You have five to 10 minutes. Zach, I work a lot. Okay, when you're in the car, you can audiobook it for free, okay? If you don't have a Bible, it's online for free. Read the New Testament first, and then once you've done that, read a chapter of the old and a chapter of the new every day. Start in Genesis 1 and Matthew 1. Next day, Genesis 2, Matthew 2, and just slowly work your way through the Bible. You can do other Bible reading plans if you want. You can just Google Bible reading plans. There are a lot of great ones out there. I'm just trying to make it as easy as possible. You won't understand everything up front, but that's okay. The more you read it, the more you will understand like anything. Like anything you do, the more that you do it, the more familiar you become with it. So you have to guard your heart. You have to read the Bible. You have to know true doctrine to protect yourself from false teaching, which is the main thrust of this passage. It's not to figure out, is the Antichrist Putin or something like that? It's to guard against anybody that would oppose Christ in their doctrine. That's the idea, okay? That's the idea. So I can think of no greater way to end this sermon than by reading part of the Nicene Creed. Now, let me give a clarifier here. A lot of pastors don't know this. Even a lot of scholars who should know better don't know this. The Nicene Creed comes from 381. The Creed of Nicaea in 325 is a little bit different. They beef it up a little bit later, and the Nicene Creed is actually called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, and it comes from 381. And listen to what it says about Jesus. Okay, we're gonna put it on the screen so you can see this. Listen to how Christ-exalting this is. It says, we believe... In one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. When the Bible says begotten, that doesn't mean like Jesus didn't exist and then he did, and God just did that before creation. Jesus has always existed. He's always been the Son. That's what the idea of begotten means. Not made, he's not a creature, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, he's truly man, of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. And he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he arose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Amen and amen. Let's pray as those helping serve communion come up to pass out the elements. Almighty God, we thank you for those of us that know you, that you've sent Christ so that we might be redeemed. We thank you that you have saved us, that you've given us correct doctrine, that when somebody becomes a Christian, the spirit dwells within us, and so we have, uh, we have someone to protect us from falling away, someone to protect us from false teaching. I pray that if there's somebody here who's not a Christian, I pray that if there's somebody here who uh, does not believe what this text says, I pray that you would give them mercy. They cannot do it themselves. They can't save themselves. 
You must give them the desire to be saved. You must give them the faith and you must save them. They can't do it. So would you give grace to them right now, whether they want it or not? Would you just wreck their hearts and wreck their lives, whether they want it or not? Make them submit to Christ. That's how we all do it. We cannot do it on our own. Would you help us? We thank you for this text. We pray that you would help us love lost people. I pray that we would have more Muslim friends. I pray that we would have more friends who identify as being homosexual. I pray that we would have more friends who are uh, Hindu or non-believing Jewish or whatever it might be. But at the same time that you would help us teach them true doctrine, that we wouldn't compromise on our faith, that we wouldn't compromise on what the scriptures say, but we would remain faithful. We can't do it. If, it's, if we can jump out of your hand, then we will. But thank you, you keep us from jumping out of your hand. We love you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.